Good evening to all of our healthful guests. Tonight we have Josh Lehman, who works out of the Nelson Physio Clinic in the Kootenays of BC. So stay tuned. All right. So thank you listeners for joining tonight. We have a very special guest on. Well, first of all, Forrest is special too. So <laughs> welcome, Forrest. Thanks. And we also have Josh Lehman. Is that how you say your last name correctly? Yeah, it is. Yeah. Yeah. That okay, was perfect. perfect. So Josh, could you go ahead and just like introduce yourself, tell our guests and pod pals what you do? Yeah. So my name is Josh Lehman, like Monica said, and I'm a physiotherapist. Um, I've been working in private for about six and a half years now. And before that, I was in public with people who had transplants at the University of Alberta in Edmonton. Um, yeah, and now I work private in Nelson. And um, I cater to pretty much all populations, but I've kind of found a little niche and um, passion for pain and chronic pain. And pain in general, just acute pain, chronic pain, any type of pain. And as a physio, it's all injuries we, and prevention. But uh, yeah, pain just seems to be one of the areas that I really enjoy. And I also specialize in concussion and vestibular rehab as well. But I think the pain has kind of been a bit of the focus for this. Awesome. How yeah. did you get into the concussion and more of the brain aspect, vestibular stuff? Well, yeah, I kind of found, um, I don't know, it always fascinated me, the medical side of things. And um, I just knew there weren't a lot of practitioners who were really specializing in it in that sense. And um, yeah, I just thought I would take some courses. And physio is a, it's within the physioscope, so it's quite broad. But uh yeah, once I started working with concussion um, and people who have had concussions, it just made me, I don't know, really enjoy it and realize how similar and intertwined it kind of is with the whole chronic pain, just the holistic nervous system. I don't know. I just find it fascinating. Is there quite a bit of extra education to get into concussion and vestibular? Truthfully, because it's within our scope, we learn a little bit in school. Um Unfortunately, it's not a, a whole lot, but then it is pretty much, you can take a couple weekend courses and I, I yeah, kind of specialize that way. So it's just a couple weekend courses for both concussion and vestibular. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. So we were really curious tonight to know your perspective on the whole resting protocol right like for for decades people have been talking about rice and i know that that's changed but rest ice compression elevation um so tonight we'd like to discuss the r in uh the rice protocol which is rest so we thought forrest would tell a little personal story to kick us off and then you could maybe uh give your assessment on what you think happened there and we could all learn from it and start some <laughs> some good combo. How Just does that sound? Put me on the spot. Yeah, no, sure. <laughs> I think that sounds good. <laughs> um, okay, so I'm going to try to just dumb this down and distill it into something 
uh, not very educated because uh, I have my own kind of theories on why what happened happened. But so the scenario was I basically on like a Saturday woke up pretty fine by midday Saturday, next are tightening up by Sunday, full blown headaches. And I didn't do anything. Like I, I had no reason for my neck to kind of go where it went through the course of that whole entire week. I had horrible headaches, which isn't my typical issue. Um, I was taking her back sets and ibuprofen just to get through work days. Um, hurt to turn my neck. I could barely like do a shoulder check in any direction. I was grimacing through most of my treatments every day. Um, and it just wasn't going away. And Thursdays I play indoor soccer. Um, Thursday was rolling around and I was like, man, I just, I don't know if I should be playing soccer this week. Like I can't even turn my neck. Um, but then I, I made a judgment call and I was like, you know, I'm just, I'm going to take a Robaxa set and I'm going to take some ibuprofen because I've found like Robaxa set on its own doesn't really do anything for me. But if I do Robaxa set and ibuprofen, it seems to be pretty effective through like other things that have happened over the years. So I took a Robaxa set and a thousand milligrams of ibuprofen, went and played indoor soccer. Uh, next morning, got up, went to work. I was like halfway through my first first patient and I went, holy crap, I can turn my neck and I have no pain. I have no restriction. And I was um, <laughs> I'm trying to <laughs> figure out what the heck just happened, I guess. Um, yeah, so that was kind of an experience I had. And I have my own like kind of theories about what that was all about and what happened there. But I guess, you know, for listeners you know, who maybe could relate to such a scenario where like, you know, just pain comes out of nowhere and what do you do with that pain? And then is it even a good idea to go play a high-end sport, soccer, yeah, <laughs> chasing a ball around when at the, earlier that day you can even turn your head like 15 degrees in either direction? Um, yeah, I'd love to like kind of hear what your thoughts are on like kind of maybe like pain science, what that's maybe the mechanisms at play there. Yeah, it's, it's interesting. I, I should preface this saying I'm not like, an expert um, researcher or scientist with, within pain. I'm just a clinician who's kind of found a niche and a passion for it. Um, but this is the type of thing I actually do hear semi-often. And when I think the biggest distinction is when it's an insidious onset, so you don't know really how it started. In my mind, my bias is to say, you know what... <laughs> probably is a lot more than just the tissue in the sense that we've actually kind of expanded the paradigm. It used to be like the biomedical and pain comes from this, treated us like a car. And it's like, okay, something's wrong at your knee. That's why you're experiencing pain. And with all the work like Lorimer Mosley and David Butler and all these pain researchers, and now there's a whole bunch now like Kieran O'Sullivan and, and uh, I think Peter O'Sullivan and they're leading us to the biopsychosocial aspect of it and it's there's more than just the biomedical biomechanical there's also a psycho like psychological component and not I hate like it's in your brain it's not that's not what we're talking about um 
and then the term psychogenic has been thrown out too like it's created in your brain and it's it's just those types of words don't really help people so it's kind of we know pain is processed in your brain but to say it's all in your brain uh, it doesn't really help i don't think so that's the bio the psycho so some components like how you feel about pain previous injury previous experience with pain those types of things contribute to pain and then the social aspect so even on a greater scale just our generation and our society and how people feel about pain or um it's just interesting that all of those different factors play into it and so this is a huge tangent for what you asked but it's no, just not really there I mean, is a lot i think it needed some context yeah exactly so in that context it's like you know you didn't wrench your neck doing something that I don't know, like vertebral artery insufficiency or something created something bad or traumatic. So once you rule that out, I actually think even if you don't get an actual diagnosis of, okay, why did you experience that pain? Resting is probably not going to help in any way. It might help calm it down, which is what we always say. You want to calm it down before you build it back up. But I think the key here is, was there a trauma or like a tissue injury? And I wouldn't call that an injury. Like even, yeah, maybe there's some swelling or an inflammation, or maybe you did do something two days before the incident that you just can't quite remember or something. But at the same time, a lot of people just wake up and their neck is like almost torticollis. Like they just can't move it. And it's just, interesting to me that a lot of the time without the mechanism just knowing that you can actually push a little bit and try to do things the big take home is are you doing more damage and And josh my question to you is when i hear about forrest going to play soccer there's going to be those feel-good hormones right so what what amount of those feel-good hormones do you think actually help his nervous system just say you know what this pain you're experiencing is is not a threat yeah and and that's that's the thing is the pain starts as your threat messenger basically and you kind of i don't know have to take it with a grain of salt kind of and assess the situation and as a healthcare practitioner yourself, you were able to do that. It's a lot easier, I think, for us to do where we step back and say, okay, this really hurts. But my question is always, what's the worst that's going to happen? And that that was literally the question. And and it's it's such a, (laughs) it it actually kind of sounds terrible. But when you think what's the worst that's going to happen, if you play soccer, it's like you're, you were already in a ton of pain. Yeah the worst that could happen really is okay. Maybe if you don't have the confidence to do something like a header or to have, I don't know, an interaction with somebody else physically, maybe that would lead to something else somehow just confidence wise, but neck wise, it's like the tissue there, even if it's stiff and tightened up, my argument is always like, well, the worst that's going to happen is maybe it stiffens up a little bit more or back to where it was before you started playing. 
Yeah. Right? And then what is the best that's going to happen, right? Exactly. Because in an ideal world, those great hormones are going to relax you and after you're going to feel those parasympathetic response from that endorphin release and yeah exactly yeah. and so that's where i don't even have an answer for okay what happened it's people often wake up with a wry neck and then just with a bit of time and then usually it may be a bit more cautious movement <laughs> you do it a little bit at a time and progressively like progressive overload or graded exposure you do a little bit more you get a little bit more range of motion a little more freedom of movement and then instead of not saying you were doing this but it's easy when you wake up with a ton of pain to catastrophize and think oh mm -hmm. i'm and focus on it because it hurts so much so then you have more and more focus on that pain and you can't get rid of it and it becomes a cycle so it's a yeah. negative feedback loop or even positive feedback loop in the pain that's like, oh, this sucks. Well, that sucks. This movement sucks. And then when you can break that up by playing a game where with, like Monica said, the hormone release and the endorphins and everything, and then your neck just has to move suddenly without thinking about it, it becomes a new window of opportunity to be like, oh, okay, that didn't actually suck that much. And then, yeah, I didn't even think about it the whole entire game. Exactly. Actually. It was not once. And, you know, I'm checking my shoulders, you know, looking all over the field, running back and forth for an hour. Didn't think about it after it left. And, you know, just. Yeah, I was, that's interesting. Like, I was just listening to a pain podcast with Andrew Huberman and a guy named Sean Mackey, I think, or McKay. He's Stanford instructor in pain science and he's a gp as well and big pain researcher and he was just talking about how much attention plays a role in it especially for mm -hmm. like kind of acute pain it's like or chronic pain too but the more attention you give it the more it impacts you and it's not yeah. as easy as saying oh just don't think about it like that doesn't help either but the if you can draw your attention away from it there's a very good chance you might actually be able to move a little bit more. And yeah. So to me, how do you, it makes sense that that happened for you and I'm glad it did. <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah. Well, I did exactly what you guys like, what's the worst that can happen and what's the, the best. And I was like, well, it can't really get a whole lot worse. Um, the best yeah. is I feel better tomorrow. Exactly. And yeah. It, it was, that was the risk reward. And I'm like, all right, well it's worth the reward for the risk. Yeah. So Forrest, I'm wondering if Josh kind of hit on the points that you were thinking or did you have a different perspective or did it kind of match what Josh just said? No, that was pretty much it. Honestly, um, my, th my thought was if I can get the pain down with the Rebaxa set and the ibuprofen to a point where I'm less likely to think about it when I turn my neck... And then while I play soccer, I'm just too distracted to notice that I had a neck issue to begin with, that there's a really good chance that my brain will reset itself. Because I started to really think, like, this is in my head. Like, mm -hmm. there's nothing wrong with my neck. There's no reason for this. Um, maybe I can trick my brain by making it not think about it for an hour and be doing full, I knew what was going to happen. I knew like I'd get onto the field and I'd be instantly having to turn my head back and forth. Um, so yeah, I was kind of going with that. 
sort of biopsychosocial model looking at it. And yeah, that, that's exactly how I approached it. My, uh, my wife and my, my mother-in-law was in at the, here at the time and they both thought I was an idiot, but, um, <laughs> but I also like, I said the same thing. I was like, I'm either making a really bad mistake right now, or this is going to work really well. And yeah, I just had to choose one of them because the whole week was terrible. <clears throat> yeah. Hey, so Josh, you had a similar experience <laughs> where you, in- <laughs> where you, didn't you like injure your ribs so, recently? And uh, can we hear about where that's at? <laughs> I hate bringing things back to myself, but it's, I use myself as an experiment all the time. And yes. like I, I start to actually feel pains that I'm pretty sure just empathy and, or something. I say it's the universe giving me empathy. But a lot of the time, if I am working on a bunch of people who have knee pain, for some reason I'll wake up the next day and then my knee kind of hurts. And it, it it's totally, I don't know, weird. But uh, <laughs> then the experimental part is I was out for a trail run like three Saturdays ago and it was a bit snowy, but not too bad. But I stepped on a rock and I kind of flew forward and then I was totally parallel to the ground and I landed right on my back and I hit, there was a, a small stump that I landed right on with probably like my 12th rib on my right side. And it totally knocked the wind out of me, and I was, <laughs> I just lay there for about, I don't know, a minute just thinking, okay, am I okay? <laughs> and, I, like, okay. And it was the start of about like a 7K run, and I was about 2K into it. And instead of going home, I was like, I'm just going to finish the run. So, <laughs> because once again, endorphins and stuff, I was feeling okay. But in the back of my mind, I'm like, what, what am I going to feel like tomorrow? But I didn't want to stop. And so I ran, and the run was actually pretty fine. And the rest of the day, I felt okay. I was like, okay, maybe I got away unscathed. But then I woke up in the middle of the night, and I could barely move. And, uh, <laughs> I, like, muscles had tightened up and cramped up. And ribs are kind of a prime example of you can't do anything anyway. So it's like, I'm not telling people with a broken femur or fibula or ulna or something to just play through it, (laughs) but a bone, (laughs) even like you said, my my family's like, aren't you going to go to the hospital? And I said, well, okay, I don't have a pneumo. Like I haven't punctured my lung with my rib. That's the only thing that I'd be worried about with a broken rib. So I'm guessing it's non-displaced. So it's just like a crack, not like a broken rib. If anything, it's probably just a bruise because I'm kind of a baby. And so <laughs> I thought... Or you thought, landed on a stump. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and I just thought, you know what, I'm, I'm just going to see what happens. And I had a hockey game that... Tu- no, I, I think I skipped the hockey game that Tuesday, Thursday. So, yeah, I did take a week off because I legitimately could barely walk. And I was like playing street hockey with my kids. And every time I had to pass it, it hurt. So I was like, okay, not yet. But the next Tuesday I went. So it was like a week and a half. And I was just thinking it's most people say ribs, it's four to six weeks, maybe even eight. And it's non-contact hockey. So it's not a big deal to me. And then rotationally, it's my right side and I'm a left-hand shooter. So it's like, I do rotate to my right so I was, I was a little bit worried and I ended up playing, but once again, I thought, what is the worst that could happen? If I keep falling on my rib, 
okay, this fracture that's stable, if it's even a fracture, would it maybe become unstable? But the odds of that are so, so small. And so I was like, okay, it's non-contact. I'll just play. And I, I took a couple falls and I was fine, but it was more like a muscle spasm. And those, like, let's say nine days, I was starting to feel better and better and activities of daily life were okay until hockey. <laughs> hockey was so much fun, but every pass, every attempted shot, I was holding my breath, like total Valsalva, even just to get it off. Just trying to splint it. Exactly. And I was like, okay, that was a dumb idea. But I woke up the <laughs> next day more sore than I had been. But I Aww. still knew I'm not damaging anything further. So mm-hmm. that was on Tuesday. And then I was like, I had a game Thursday that I did skip. Because I was just, okay, it was too sore. But I'm still glad I went and tested it out. Mm-hmm. And then the next Thursday, so within two weeks, I just played last week and... Don't know if I had a good game, but I, I played with very minimal pain, and so it was just nice to to test it. And I, it's still there; it's still sort of touch. But I'm like, hey, I can play, I can do these things, and that's a total tangent and just anecdote. But it to me, it's like, well, yeah, but I don't know. The pain wasn't a reason to rest for me because I felt like I was able to rule out any red flags, anything sinister. And so I know it's it's probably some muscle tightness and just nervous system, sympathetic nervous system guarding and everything. Mm-hmm. So if I play, even if it maybe gets worse or prolongs how long I'm in pain, it's not prolonging my injury. If that makes sense. Right. And so the yeah, you weren't causing you weren't causing more tissue damage. Exactly. And so that's yeah. that's the thing I have to talk about with people the most is we call it hurt versus harm. Mm-hmm. And hurt is like no susception or ouch. And then harm is, okay, you are damaging things more. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And in the vast, what did, oh, I was just going to say the vast majority of people I see, it is the latter, like, or the former where it's just mostly hurt and there's not a big mm-hmm. risk. Yeah. I had an appendectomy uh, last September Ooh. and about a week into it after the surgery, you know, I was trying not to pick up my kid and I just thought like, you know, I was tender, sore, painful. And I was like, man, I just, I don't know when I can do anything again. And my surgeon called me up to check in a week afterwards, asked me how I was doing. I was like, well, I mean, yeah, I'm in pain. I'm sore. I'm like, but I want, I want to pick up my child again. I like, I want to do stuff. Like when can I start doing stuff? He's like, oh, you're fine. <laughs> he's like, he's like, you can't, he literally said what you just said. He's like, you can't make it any worse. You just might hurt. Mm-hmm. and I yeah. was like really and he was like oh yeah yeah you're fine it's not like a hernia like you're you're good and I was like no way and it, instantly I went from like pains of seven to like a pain of three in those two sentences of you're fine like my brain re- rewired in a heartbeat it was like really mm-hmm. um, and I think it's yeah it's that hurt versus harm and just hearing somebody tell me that it was no longer a harm and it was just going to hurt Man, that was such a great reframing for me. Totally, that's that's awesome. I'm glad to to hear the like surgeons talking like that. Because it, what about the whole concept of like the fact that when you're in pain, though, this is like devil's advocate. Yeah. I totally agree with no. everything you guys just said. 
But on the other <clears throat> side of it, when somebody is in pain, would there not be more granulization of tissues like collagen structures, scar tissue in response to like, okay, it's a little bit different in your case, Josh, because you had an obvious mechanism of injury, whereas Forrest yeah. did not have an obvious mechanism. But when you're talking about an actual injury or fall, where the body's already starting to process scar tissue and granulization, would pushing it past the point of pain cause that to lay down more granulization than it would have? And in that case, would that be harmful? See, and that's a good question. And truthfully, I don't know the answer. <clears throat> yeah. But if you look at, let's say, a knee replacement surgery, that's mm -hmm. a massive trauma. That's incredibly painful. There's a ton of scar tissue. But the best thing for it is to mobilize it as soon as possible, mm -hmm. as much mm -hmm. as possible. Like even, mm -hmm. I got to watch a surgeon surgery once and <laughs> it was a knee surgery. And <laughs> I tell this anecdote to anybody who's had a surgery and the surgeon looks at me and he knows I'm a physio and he bent the person's knee while they're still sedated. And then he straightened it out all the way. And he said, look, Josh, I've done my job. <laughs> and he's like, now the rehab, it's up to you. And so I tell that anecdote though, because... When a person's awake and alert and there's pain and swelling and inflammation, it's going to hurt to bend their knee. Mm -hmm. But I know for certain that they can. <laughs> I mean, that their knee is capable of bending. <laughs> I don't know for certain that they can, but I know for certain that their knee itself, I've seen mm -hmm. it bend basically. Right? Can I use that story the next time I see a new replacement <laughs> no, in our office? No, absolutely. <laughs> Just because okay. it, it, I like it. it is. It's it, wonderful. That is the thing. Once again, hurt versus harm. And but yeah. I don't. So tissue wise, I don't. I don't think the granulization and the scar tissue being laid down is a real in, reason to rest. I think if mm -hmm. anything, actually moving through it while you're laying down scar tissue actually helps prevent adhesions and it actually mm -hmm. prevents the scar tissue from restricting range of motion and becoming adhesive so well theoretically like the fibroblasts are needing to be told where to go to lay down that new scar tissue or or new tissue it doesn't have to be scar tissue yeah but like those types of collagen fibers um so the movements rather important. And if we circle back around to like rice, you know, rest, ice, compression, elevation, you know, the rest would actually allow somebody's fibroblast to be laying collagen fibers in a way that does not allow mobility in the end. Exactly. Mm -hmm. yeah. The ice delays the, the natural inflammatory response, the healing response that the body is through evolution, just, yep. you know, done. Uh, compression elevation, I don't know. Where where is everything falling on compression elevation? Yeah, there's there's a role, I guess. <laughs> like but I never really preach it. <laughs> because once mm -hmm. again, I agree with you completely that I don't think we want to minimize the inflammatory response. Um in Would fact you use uh, out of curiosity, let's say somebody's sprained I lost you for a oh. second. Yeah, I think I bumped my cable. Okay. If somebody um, came to you with a sprained ankle and they wanted to manage the pain with the ice, yeah. 
would you recommend managing pain with the ice? And would you put a time limit on how much yeah, icing they can and, do? And I'm glad you brought up ankle. That's kind of the prime example of this transition from rice or price to something else. I think price, the P is protect. With, with an injury like that, so people listening i've never used that before <laughs> for people listening um <laughs> when you sprain your ankle it's it's a torn ligament whether it's a grade one two or three it's the ligament itself is partially torn or fully torn um and so the protection there is actually kind of important i would say you know what you don't want to do the same thing that you did to cause the injury in the first place mm-hmm. but other than that if you don't do that you're not once again going to make it worse by walking Mm -hmm. and by moving it. I also don't think, and I, I, like I said, I'm a clinician and not the researcher, so I don't know the best science now, but I really feel that the evidence behind ice is that physiologically, it doesn't have as big of an effect as we once thought. So Mm -hmm. icing it, you know what, even though we're saying, oh, it's anti-inflammatory, but it's like, I don't know how anti-inflammatory it is. It is anti-inflammatory, but I don't think it's actually going to do a whole lot. But if it numbs the area and it feels okay, it's like, yeah, that's fine. My So I'm going to chime in because Chinese medicine, yeah. for thousands of years, we are very against ice. And the whole thing with Chinese medicine is circulation, right? So ice is causing that vasoconstriction, which is causing a lack of circulation to the local area. And the, the trap is that in the short term, the person might say, oh, hey, this ice is really helping me. But it might be helping you for the time that you have the ice on. But is it actually promoting long term healing? And that's really the question, because no matter what, if you constrict the vessels, you're going to have pain relief for a period of time. But what is the long-term ramifications of closing the vessels? How much ice was there 2,000 years ago? (laughs) You know, there was cold compresses, and there were, like, (laughs) cold rivers, and... That's a valid question. (laughs) Go get an ice pack, would you? Out of the freezer. (laughs) Well, and even... Oh, what was I going to say? <laughs> I was going to say something about that. Oh, yeah. What I would do, I would promote something like a contrast bath. So yes. if you have a hot bucket, like 35 degrees, and the cold bucket, 10 or less, so ice water, and then you go one minute back and forth. And it'll probably feel really weird, but uncomfortable, but better. You'll get the effect mm-hmm. of maybe even more blood flow because you get that vasodilation, vasoconstriction, vasodilation, and it actually pumps more blood in and out. And at the same time, it's kind of compression through the hydrostatic pressure. So just sitting in water is compressing your area, your joint. So it's like, it's almost working to promote blood flow and then prevent blood flow and then promote it. And it it, kind of is a pump. Mm -hmm. And most people say it actually feels pretty good would you use that for kind of like your acute injury in the first couple days yeah that's what i do or recommend but at the same time once again it's kind of a modality that i'm like i don't know physiologically yeah it does some of those things but i don't know what to what extent 
but it, it won't restrict blood flow like ice does. What I like about that modality and the pump, like you said, is that in the early stages of an injury, we have a lot of like debris, cells that are dying and the lymphatic system that needs to come in and carry them out yeah. of the body. So I really feel like that pump is super valuable to flush out all those metabolites that are stuck in the tissue. And it, so I can really appreciate what you're saying there. Yeah, and I think that that's kind of, that was the theory of the ice was to prevent mm -hmm. secondary necrosis by when you get more and more blood flow, you're getting more of those metabolites. And they thought that if you get, if you prevent that, you won't have as much metabolites to have to clear out later and you won't get as mm -hmm. much necrosis and cell death. But that's kind of been, I don't want to say the word proven, but kind of proven false <laughs> i don't know yeah it's been debunked yeah but even the the original author who you know wrote that paper about using ice which was like in the 60s yeah he, he doesn't do it anymore he's like that wasn't really what i was aiming for somebody took my paper and took it too far yeah more or less i can't find the right words for it but like he wasn't even really advocating ice needed to be for everything inflammatory yeah yeah and so once again, that's another tangent that we're getting away from rice. I do think protecting mm -hmm. it is good. But then <laughs> I've heard an acronym MEAT. So meat instead <laughs> of rice. So something like movement, certain exercises, analgesics, not anti-inflammatories, so like Tylenol, and then therapeutic modalities, whatever mm -hmm. is indicated. And I know, yeah, it, even things like acupuncture are, can be quite helpful. I know there's a lot of good acupoints near and around the ankle. And, um, yeah. So, so we just went from vegan to, to carnivore. <laughs> <laughs> I'm liking it. I know. Right. Yeah. <laughs> I've also heard peace and love. I think, cause I take physiotherapy <laughs> students and I, I, um, that's the thing that they're talking about a little bit in school. Um, peace and love. Peace and love. I'm just going to look it up. Those are like new acronyms? It's a or? new acronym, but once again, it protect, elevate, avoid anti-inflammatory meds, compress, educate, load, optimism, vascularization, and exercise. <laughs> Wow, so, that's a mouthful. I know, right? <laughs> that's a lot to remember. I know, yeah. I thought I had rice down, and now they're just changing. Now we're going me. meat and peace and love. <laughs> that's amazing. Yeah. And these are the, the new students coming out of physio school. They're, they're running with that one. Yeah. I think, well, that's yeah, just okay. what they're being yeah, taught. And I think it, it, it makes more sense to me. Yeah. Yeah, I agree with it. The yeah. acronyms. Uh, yeah. You know. <laughs> it fits it in Nelson really well. Oh, totally. like, yeah. the, in the Kootenays, it's like the perfect acronym. Yeah. Oh, you sprained your ankle. It's some peace and love on Just that. Peace and love. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But yeah, the, the, so, that's the, the whole, like the ankle is a prime hurt versus harm thing once again. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And it's, yeah, unless you're re-rolling it, you do have tissue damage, right? Like... A, a, yeah. tear, a torn ligament but you actually usually get over pain within a week 
And so your pain lasts less long than your healing, which is the fascinating mm-hmm. part for ankles. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. it still doesn't mean you're more compromised by like two or three weeks. It's You still don't want to roll it, obviously. But by four to six weeks, give or take, it should be almost back to normal, right? But mm-hmm. yeah. So if we could switch body areas, Josh. Yeah. Because I'm super fascinated with your whole uh, concussion and vestibular uh, focus there in your clinic. So when you're talking about pushing after an injury to speed up healing as in regard to concussion. Yeah. Now, is there such thing as harm after a concussion? Like that, that's actually a really good question. And when it comes to concussions, this is none of this, like everything I'm going to say is probably just anecdotal from what I'm hypothesizing now Um, and not super researched. But part of me worries we've gone from one side of just, oh, concussions mean nothing to the other side of absolutely demonizing them. And it's you get one (laughs) concussion, you better not get another one or you'll be screwed for the rest of your life. It's like, Mm -hmm. there's a middle ground there that we have to find. And Mm -hmm. once again, like I was saying, it's the kind of the same conversation because with concussions though, the first maybe 24 to 48 hours, okay, you want to give yourself a reset. The, The whole dark room, minimal stimulus, that's not a bad idea just to see if you can calm things down. But then, once again, it's now early mobilization in the form of something like cardio exercise. They're showing cardio is like one of the best things you can do. Do you think that's due to like increasing blood flow? Blood flow, there's probably a big systemic response. Yeah, hormones, everything. The biopsychosocial, once again, getting out there, actually doing something versus not doing something. But... The caveat is with concussions, it's often when you are becoming overstimulated, you get more and more symptoms. And so if your exercise is a stimulus that you could push too far and get more symptoms. So it's like me going to play soccer after a concussion. Like I'm getting my cardio. Yeah. But it's a lot of focuses and a lot of directions. Exactly. And so I would not recommend that. Right. Mm -hmm. But I would say, hey, start with a slight jog, test your heart rate. A lot of the time they're finding you can actually do threshold training with symptoms. So kind of like people when they do anaerobic threshold training, you look at where you heart rate is when you're producing more and more lactic acid, that becomes your anaerobic threshold. And then you want to stay around that or push it as part of a training system. With concussion, you can actually kind of do that with symptoms. And so you would have a heart rate monitor and say, okay, I'm jogging slowly and I'm in a safe spot and I feel decent. Okay, I can go a little bit faster. Okay, maybe I can go a little bit faster. But then once you come upon those symptoms and symptoms, once again, with concussion, it sucks because it can be many, many different things. Mm -hmm. And so Mm -hmm. if you notice some of those things, though, right away, it's okay, that might be your threshold. Okay, your heart rate's 130. Okay, don't go above that, but see how long you can go at 130. 
and then you slowly play with that. But once again, mm-hmm. avoiding the symptoms or maybe resting is not the way to go either because then you end up having to do this later when you might, might be prolonging it. So it's all about hurt versus harm once again in the sense that even more and more concussion symptoms doesn't mean you're causing more damage to the brain itself. What's the worst that can happen if someone overdoes it after a concussion? I've seen people though, like, and I will use that example, right? Like what's the worst that could happen with concussion? It is different though, because I've seen people blow through their threshold. And then instead of say two or three days of recovery, that maybe the typical MSK acute injury would have to, I don't know, overcome. It mm-hmm. becomes like, it, I've seen it like set people back a month or two. And so it does oh, become wow. kind of problematic, but that's where consistency and not overdoing it. And the example of a gas tank, and it's, you have to pace yourself. And it's, if you deplete your gas tank way too early in the day, odds are you're going to get more symptoms and odds are it'll take you more time to recover. But so it's, mm-hmm. it's very individual specific and you just have to work with the person and meet them where they're at. A lot of people with pain, concussion and all this, they don't like what I'm saying. <laughs> and so I have to be able to meet them where they're at and just build up our trust with each other. <clears throat> Josh, why do you think that people don't like what you're saying when you try <laughs> to give this perspective? Well, I think even societally, especially pain. Mm-hmm. We've been, it's ingrained that pain means we're damaging something. And so they might think I'm minimizing what they're going through and their experience. And if they do, that means I haven't communicated it properly. Right. Cause mm-hmm. I don't, I never want anybody to feel like I'm minimizing it, but I also want to help coach them to kind of empower them to regain their locus of control and just be able to, I don't know, manage it themselves and take a more active approach. And so it becomes one of those things where if they've been taught that pain means harm and I'm sitting here saying, I don't think it does, I can lose some people because some people don't agree with that, even though all the research and science is kind of saying this. Well, I think you brought up a good point about just like the pendulum has really swung from like, ah, yeah, concussion, no big deal. Go back out there. Yeah. To we're on the other side of that now. We've demonized it. Yeah. And I've always always kind of wondered like, you know, like hiking through the backcountry with all this lightweight gear and doing these big adventures. And then I like take a moment to look around and go, dude, there's some people who hiked through here a hundred years ago with cast iron pots and pans and got injured all over the place and they just plowed right through this with no like wow we've really gotten weak yeah you know like and so i I think the pendulum like in culture society has really swung from like this very like hardy push through which was probably maybe a little too too crazy to pretty soft totally and And i think you're right there's there's a middle in there somewhere that could be found and i'm sorry i warned you that my son might wake up and he is up so i'll be like i'll probably be just five minutes max but i'm I'm even gonna keep my camera on i'll be right back it's okay (laughs) 
We're just going to continue talking. I, I knew this was going to happen. I said, yeah, I guarantee it, dude, the, the night that he's not going to wake up. But, you know, it lasted a whole hour, so it's that's pretty, pretty sweet. Yeah, it's pretty solid. And if we put it, let's just put a silence here so I can cut it out. Sure. We have so many questions for you I'm now. I'm so sorry. <laughs> it's all good. Don't worry about it. You know, How we old's had your to kiddo? Have... Uh, he's five. Five. Uh, yeah, we didn't really. We're gonna just do... teach the oh, whole. Sorry, go uh, ahead. I don't know self-soothing techniques. Ah, <laughs> oh, that's okay. I think nurturing's a great thing. So the thought that I had yep. came back to a podcast that Forrest and I recorded recently, where we talked about like animals and how animals can like push through an insane amount of pain, and it just made me think like as a society. So what is pain? Pain is a threat. Well, we're being told by society that a concussion is threat, that these certain injuries are threat, that our nervous systems should respond in a certain way. So what percentage of injuries and pain is actually that societal thing that you mentioned? Yeah, that's that's a good question and one I ask myself a lot. And this isn't like to try to belittle people who are treating a certain way and stuff. It's more just my personal understanding of the body and how we, how we go around treating it and understanding it. And even a lot of the pain scientists, I remember, I don't know, every system in our body is so interconnected that they're calling themselves like neurologists a lot less than, I don't know, like biologists. And, Mm-hmm. So it's like the nervous system will affect your immune system. It will affect your musculoskeletal system. It will affect your gastrointestinal system. Like they all affect each other. And so we, I mean, physios and MSK practitioners in the the past, it's because that's what we focus on. But to just treat the one system without thinking of any of the other systems is kind of, I don't know, I, I think missing the mark a little bit. <clears throat> yeah. And so... So I think I think Forrest had a, a question for you. Oh, I did. I, I was going to wait to circle it back around at some point, but you had mentioned way earlier on in the conversation about telling people, like, trying hard not to tell people it's in their head. Yeah. And, and I find myself doing the same thing at times where trying to explain to them like potentially how the brain works around pain around injury and i I catch myself in the same moment going like i know you don't want to hear this that the pain's in your head but to a certain degree it is and i know it's not necessarily helpful to some but i want to i'm wondering if you have a way of phrasing it that maybe i could steal yeah i I totally (laughs) i totally ignore that part completely (laughs) even though i know like even that podcast i was talking about the huberman one with the pain researcher it's pain is in your brain like it's processed in your brain we don't even know which parts of the brain perfectly are responsible for it but no susception is in your peripheral there's no pain there. There's, there actually isn't, right? Like, mm-hmm. it doesn't have pain in the periphery. 
with that said, I don't tell people that. <laughs> it's, <laughs> it's, I do bring up the whole biopsychosocial and just explain to them that regard. It's kind of like, I hate saying this, but with physio, diagnosis means a lot to people. But mm-hmm. there's a ton of things that we don't actually have an accurate diagnosis for that I know we can help treat and manage. And so it's it's kind of the same thing where even though I know it, where it's processed, it's like I don't have to know exactly how it necessarily works. I have to know how what you can do about it. Mm-hmm. And so for me, one one analogy I really like is a bucket or a cup. And if you fill that cup with biopsychosocial factors, so previous pain or stress or nutrition, poor nutrition or inadequate sleep or what your parents, their chronic pain situation and stuff. Once that bucket is overfilled or overflowing, that's kind of the body's capacity to manage the pain. And then once it's overflowing, it's like, oh, that's when you feel it or that's when it becomes too much. And so then Mm -hmm. I say, okay, how can you, what are the options? try to empty the bucket as best as you can work on the parasympathetic nervous system, work on everything, but then how can you expand and maybe make a bigger cup and build up your tolerance? Um, and so that's where exercise and movement and even modalities can, can come in. Mm -hmm. And so that doesn't really answer your question, (laughs) but I do, (laughs) I do try to sometimes stay away from the physiology because a lot of the time they don't, even if they think they need to know the exact science behind things, a lot of people are okay with knowing what they can do about it and how they can regain function and, kind of improve their quality of life <clears throat> i've tried to do like a there's a story that was used in one of the biopsychosocial courses i took where you know the instructors put a like a, a picture of the brain up on a whiteboard and they picked a few students in class and they're like okay so anytime you hear this during a story you're pain so you're gonna blot the brain with a pain signal and then if you hear stress, you're a stress signal. You're going to blot the brain. And if you hear um, injury, you're going to blot the you know, the brain with that. And so they went through this whole entire story of like this person who gets out of the car, lets their dog out of the car. You know, Dog runs across the street. As they turn to look, they tweak their back. And they go through this whole entire thing. So there's like there's stress, there's pain, there's injuries. And the brain keeps getting lit up with all these signals throughout this whole entire story. And then they're kind of like, okay, so now like now you've gone to see your, your practitioner and you kind of know what the pain's about, but there's all this, this, this other stress and you know now your practitioner's helping you try to like find movement and find health again and all that stuff's been taken care of. Now you're back, your, your back's fine. Well, you know, two months later, you go bankrupt and your back pain comes back. Why? And it's like, well, it's because that stress signaling is tied into the back pain signaling. And so, it, you know, there's that inner relationship um, that happens. And so I've tried to, like, explain to people that kind of understanding of what's going on in the brain so they can kind of maybe visualize it. Like, when I totally. say it's in your brain, it doesn't, like, yeah. it is, but it's multifactorial. Yeah. No, I like that story. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. 
<laughs> Why is there a stigma, though, about... Like, this is just a curious question. Why do people put up such a defense to think that it's in the brain? I mean, the brain is one of the most complex things in our body. So it's it's really interesting that... And, and, and I... Like, I totally understand it to some degree. But it, we're talking about, like, a very complex structure that we don't even know mm -hmm. the half of. Well, and that's, that's the thing is it's still people in pain and chronic pain, they still have a perceived threat mm -hmm. quite often. And if a practitioner or someone tells them, well, no, like, there isn't that peripheral threat anymore. A lot of the time, you might feel invalidated. <clears throat> mm -hmm. And so I can see the pushback to that. And then the way it gets worded. So even practitioners I've talked to about this stuff, they're like, you, you want me to tell people that pain is in their brain or in their head? And I'm just like, no, I want you to tell them a whole bunch of stuff. <laughs> but that's just mm -hmm. one of the small things, right? And so mm -hmm. there is, yeah, that stigma of... Don't tell me it's in my head. Because, yeah, if you, how many times, I don't know, I don't know if, I, I, I play hockey and I've been hit in the calf with a puck on numerous occasions. And I don't know if you've ever hurt yourself in the calf, but you don't bruise. Yes. <laughs> I don't bruise. But my calf is so sore. And I, I sometimes want to be validated by having a big bruise. Like people, if people are like, why are you limping? I'm just like, cause it hurts. <laughs> I just want to be able to show them the bruise and be like, see, yeah. good. I'm glad I'm hurt. Right. Yeah. So there mm -hmm. is that validation to it that you really need to be able to, I don't know, get in touch with for people. That is so true. So my friend broke her pelvis the other day and I went to the hospital with her. And then she got her spine x-rayed and she was like, oh good, I don't have any breaks in my vertebrae. The doctor says it's just ligament tear. And in my mind, I'm thinking, ooh, that's like, <laughs> that's a much longer recovery. Um, I didn't say that, of course, but you know, you're right. Where I hope it's she's like, not listening to this. <laughs> she, she, <laughs> I've later told her my opinion. <laughs> anyway, so... But we want to see that break on the x-ray to validate our pain. Like, why is this so bad? Why is this so severe? I want to see the proof in the pudding. I want to be able to see the bruise or the the break on the x-ray. Yeah. Yeah. But I think you mentioned earlier, Josh, like the diagnosis, everybody wants the diagnosis, but sometimes it doesn't really help everyone. Like, okay, so what's the treatment? I don't know. I don't know what the treatment is at this point. Maybe I have some ideas, but you know, for some reason, psychologically, we want we want the why so bad, yeah. regardless of knowing that the why doesn't give us potentially what we need either. Yeah, exactly, and that's that's the kind of frustrating part, um, especially with overimaging. I mean, it's not so bad here. Um, but in my mind, is an image going to change treatment? Then I would recommend an image. So for example, mm -hmm. my rib. <laughs> I could have gotten an x-ray and if, if it were a different bone, like if it were a different bone, I would have just to make sure because mm -hmm. yeah, with bone, you want to immobilize. Mm 
but there aren't a whole lot of other injuries tissue wise that I would immobilize other than bone, to be completely honest. Like mm-hmm. what's the most mm-hmm. brutal injury right now, sports wise or anything would probably, people would probably say ACL cause it's like nine month rehab and almost a hundred percent of the time people are opting for surgery. And that's a whole other aside that I could go down. But even with an ACL tear, what's step one, get back as much range of motion as you can get as much strength in the leg as you can. It's like, it's not rest. It's maybe calm down the inflammation, but the muscles actually act as a pump as well. So if you have swelling in your knee, yeah, bend it, straighten it, bend it, straighten it. It can actually help flush it out again. But it's that injury, you actually don't even want to rest. Mm-hmm. So, so let's talk about some of the side effects of resting. So in your mind, let's talk about long-term, not short-term. Yeah. If a patient was to not mobilize, let's say they did, in your case, you're talking about ACL if they did not mobilize their ACL and they just stayed on bed rest, what do you think would happen in the long term? I just, once again, I don't want to like villainize musculoskeletal in- injury too much or like the biomechanics mm-hmm. a whole lot. I do think it, they'll probably maybe be a little more comfortable <laughs> for starters, right? <laughs> not having to push through the pain. <laughs> But they'll have less range of motion. And then if they do end up going the surgical route, they're going to have a way harder rehab. Like, and mm. in Alberta, I mean, it's, it's not like it's a whole lot different here. But in Alberta, I was in a knee clinic. And it was pretty much the surgeons wouldn't even consider operating on you until you had full range of motion. Where, hmm. I don't know what... What do, what do you mean? So, like, if you had an ACL tear, they wouldn't do an ACL repair until you had full range of motion. until you had full range of motion. Basically, maybe okay. not full range, but at least full extension. Just be- And what was the reasoning behind well, that? Well, the outcomes are going to be better if you have hmm. a better range of motion and better strength going into the surgery. And postponing surgery. So unless you're an elite athlete and your life or work depends on getting the surgery, then they'll be like, they triage that way. But if you're somebody who are a leisurely athlete or something and you can put off the surgery, it's like, okay, we won't do it until you have better range of motion, better strength, better function, because the outcomes are so much better when your prehab is a lot better. Mm-hmm. Or your, uh, yeah. yeah. And so here though, it, and it's not, I'm not saying anything bad about it, but if they see an ACL, they'll do surgery right away. And the whole anecdote was, once again, I could go on a tangent of ACLs, but because the ACL is hypothesized to provide so much stability in your knee, if you don't have that and you're walking on it, you could be shearing your meniscus or causing more and more damage within your knee joint. Mm -hmm. And there is a lot of science to say that that actually might, that thought might be changing. And so there might be different avenues to go, but mm-hmm. that's why they will do surgery right away a lot of the time. But like I was saying in Edmonton, I just, a lot of the time they would recommend getting as strong as you can before because the adverse effect of waiting a little bit is actually not a whole lot 
compared to mm-hmm. getting surgery before it's necessarily ready or something. I don't know. Okay. Definitely different ways to do it. Mm-hmm. And I've seen people recover really, really well from an ACL here. So it's not like one's better than the other. It's just, I just don't know why they do one either way. <laughs> Depends on the surgeon. Exactly. In most cases. Yeah. And think. where they were trained and yeah. did their residency and stuff. Yeah. Yeah. I had my ACL done in trail and they, they really didn't check my range of motion before yeah. the surgery, but that was 10 years ago. Yeah. Let's t- t- check your, <laughs> your MRI if you get one and then, oh yeah, yeah, let's do it. he didn't even check my acl or my mri he just felt he just felt that i had no ligament he's like oh yeah it's gone let's schedule you (laughs) that's the one hands-on test actually that i can say for certain like probably 95 percent of the time if an acl is torn and there's not too much swelling Mm -hmm. it's actually pretty easy to feel yeah the anterior drawer and lockman Yeah. yeah Yeah, the Lockman, yeah. Or a pivot shift. So circling back circling back to um, this whole comparison of we want to tell our patients to move. Yep. But we also want to validate them. Yeah. So how do you validate their pain but tell them to get out there all in the same breath? What would that conversation look like? Okay, so circle back to the the whole bucket analogy definitely having that conversation even this conversation like just Mm -hmm. talking with them I'm I'm very kind of unprofessional and very I would consider myself personable I guess and so it's it's just building that rapport and just making sure people are comfortable with you and in the right space to hear like maybe even the first time I assess them it's you know what if you have to keep resting, hey, by all means, do whatever works for you. You might not mm. be in a place to, to move out of it. Um, mm-hmm. But I highly encourage you to try. <laughs> and so, and then that's the other thing is having that hurt versus harm conversation. And I'm using my hands to kind of, I use it as a guide where I use one hand and I'm like, this is your threshold and then I use the other hand and it's, mm-hmm. you want to bump into that threshold a little bit. And then, <clears throat> so you might feel a little bit of pain, a little bit of pain. But as soon as you stop the activity, if the pain's gone, hey, that's totally fine. And mm-hmm. then if you have a little bit of pain last for like an hour or two, that's okay. But it's easy for me to say, cause I don't have to feel their pain, right? Mm-hmm. But if you blow through that threshold, that's most likely when they're going to have these setbacks. And so all the, like the way you have to go is consistency. And so if I want people to move or exercise, it's like, I don't, I'm not going to say half an hour. I'm going to say, Hey, walk as much until you feel, maybe feel it a bit and then stop. And if you're having a really good day, don't blow through that threshold a lot of people do that where they're like, oh, I finally feel relief. Mm-hmm. I have so much I want to get done. And then they go do a million things and then they wake up the next day and they're just like, oh, darn, that's not so great. Yeah. <laughs> right? And so yeah. it's all yeah. about pacing once again. And it's even if you go beyond your limit a little bit, that might be a day or two set setback and then you just try again. 
Yeah, just because you have that, as you said earlier, a full tank of gas doesn't mean drive as far as you possibly can. Exactly. You know, that yeah. day. You still need to consider that you need to save some of that energy yeah. or that, you know, that pain stimulus. Exactly. Try to ration it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, ration it. So when where does the analgesic and anti-inflammatory drug kind of prescription come into that? So... Like, do you... Yeah. <laughs> Up until this most recent... Like I said, I'm constantly evolving and learning, too. And up until this recent um, listen of one of these pain podcasts, I, I learned that anti-inflammatories actually might prolong pain experience and chronic pain. And I was always mm-hmm. of the mind, like, mm-hmm. you know what? If it helps you do more physio or more rehab, it's worth it right? It gives you mm-hmm. more ability to do stuff. But apparently there are some studies showing that NSAIDs especially versus analgesics, NSAIDs have mm-hmm. a bit more of a, I don't know, adverse effect in that they can actually take longer to get over the pain. I don't know the physiology. I don't know why or anything, but I'm probably going to just to help give people that advice is maybe some Tylenol. And if it's really mm-hmm. bad, and a lot of people say, oh, Advil is the only thing that helps for me. And so I'm not going to say don't, because if it helps you get sleep, if it helps you be more comfortable, and once again, do more of your activities of daily living, it it is worth it. <clears throat> yeah. So it's all functional. That's what I would say. An individual. Mm-hmm. Is there a way that you describe, um, say, the difference between like pain and discomfort? So when people are trying to decide if they're pushing too far, you know, they that they can evaluate themselves that they're not pushing actually into say like pain or yeah. you know maybe something less. I think my idea is try to be as I, I even though I'm very talkative now, I try not to talk too much and. If you let the person talk as much as they want or are comfortable, they usually will use those words like, well, I know this pain versus this sharp pain versus this um, discomfort or or, Mm -hmm. or soreness. And they're like, yeah, I can usually kind of tell the difference. Um, But that is... Every, it's so subjective. Pain is subjective. So one person's yeah. two out of ten might be another person's eight, and vice versa. So it's mm-hmm. it is a it is a hard balance to even differentiate soreness versus pain. Can I give you a good? Yeah. Uh, I guess this is an analogy Please. for it that I, I've been using. I, I stole from one of my students. Um, but pain and discomfort is like a stoplight. So green, obviously go, there's nothing wrong. Yellow's discomfort, meaning like you can go through the intersection, you should look both ways, you know, be a little bit weary, but that's discomfort. Like you can yeah. go. And red is that's pain. You go through the intersection, you get T boned. Yeah. Stop whatever you're doing. And so that's kind of how I describe to people like the difference between what I'm telling them to push yeah. and, and like find what their their abilities are is, is I want them to work through in and potentially through discomfort as long as it doesn't run right into a red light. Yeah. 
Like your red light means just stop what you're doing. It's time to draw back. Yep. No, I, I like that. And I, I use the traffic light analogy for a lot of other things too. <laughs> so it's even like with concussion or with pacing, one of the best things you can do for concussion is pace. And it's, yeah, green light is something that doesn't bother you at all. Yellow light is, okay, maybe there are some symptoms. So I guess if you equated it to pain, it would be kind of the discomfort. And then a red light is an activity that you have to do but you know it's going to cause a ton of symptoms. So with concussion, you have to do these red lights, but it's don't plan a red light on the same day as another red light or something like that. Mm. Um, Minimize how many red lights you're trying to run through. (laughs) Exactly. You know what? When I was a teenager, (laughs) when when I was a teenager, we always had a rule, like don't break two laws at the same time. Because that's when you're going to get busted by the cops. No, just <laughs> <laughs> only break one yeah, law at a time. So only run one red light yeah. at a time. <laughs> My dad's words of advice was, I know you're going to do dumb shit. Just don't get caught. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I was such a boring teenager. <laughs> <laughs> well, you still got time. Yeah, you you yeah, can do all sorts yeah. of stuff. Just don't get caught. Yeah. I'll live vicariously yeah, exactly. through my children. Lost my little <laughs> Yeah, right. <laughs> awesome. Yeah. Well, it's uh it's getting late here. Is there anything else that you guys wanted to discuss before we wrap up? I hope that hasn't been too like rambly. <laughs> oh no, not at all. It's it's fantastic. I've I've learned a lot and enjoyed my time oh, I'm glad. greatly <laughs> this evening. Yeah. You know, um, one more thing I was going to ask, because Forrest and I just had this discussion about deep tissue massage and how it's all the rage and everyone wants (laughs) deep tissue, deep pressure. And we had this really interesting conversation about, is that self-harm in a way? Because sometimes you are literally, like patients want to be hurt. Like they're coming to your clinic and they're like wanting you to hurt them. So, anyway, it was well, just it's not little... that they want you to. It's kind of like they're uh, very accepting of you causing more pain. Yeah, well, even IMS, right? I, I do that all the time, and I have a lot of people that say, oh, I hate it, but I love it. <laughs> That's like me every time I yeah, see you. And so, like, there, we know there is a pain gate theory as well for pain reduces pain, right? Like... And then just different nerve fibers travel at different speeds. And so it's, but I, I do think it's definitely at a mechanical level as well and a neurochemical level too. But then with deep tissue, it is, I, I, I see what you're saying. But that people want to be psychologically if, if, harmed if I, to feel better. <laughs> to be completely honest, I've had one <laughs> massage in my life, basically. And I didn't think they pushed hard enough. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I can't say anything because yeah if, if i'm gonna lay there for a little while or lie there for a bit i i want to feel it i don't know yeah so yeah. that's interesting though like why do you want to feel it so i what think your I think brain it's just from, tells you that that equals results I think it's, for me it's the I'm, I, I don't know i'm looking deep into my own psyche now but maybe it was the, the years of <laughs> like athletic training where 
I love soreness after a workout. Like I, I do. And it's because you know you you did exactly, something. and so I'm like, oh man, I can't even walk today. This is awesome, and, <laughs> and I know a lot of people that are like, I hate leg day because I can't walk the next day, and to me, I'm like, that's the best. <laughs> but yeah, and that's actually another analogy I'll use sometimes for people that pain and the subjectivity of it. If I didn't do a workout. And I woke up one day and I was in so much pain like that with my legs, I would go to the hospital because that's not mm-hmm. normal. But if I can yeah. attribute, oh, I'm in this much pain because I did my workout, it's like, oh, yeah, that's normal. That's fine. So there is no threat there, no perceived threat. Mm. No. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> Yeah, and that's, I think, what we were talking about in our last little session, Monica and I did, was really, like, what's the psychological factor yeah. in, in that deep tissue, uh, feel-good pain? And at what point do you draw a line as a therapist between, like, am I inflicting harm at this point, or am I improving tissue health? Yeah. And does the patient get to decide, or do I get to decide that? Yeah, that's a good question. <laughs> well, we just uh, we just did a podcast on yeah. it, so I don't know if we answered it I though. Know. But yeah, yeah I, I'm like, I, yeah, yeah, I'd be curious. I'm curious to hear that. Does it go back to that validation thing though? Because what I just heard you say was you went to the exercise gym and you want to feel your legs sore. It kind of goes back to that thing of when we hit our calves, we want to see a bruise. <laughs> when we fall down a mountain, we want to see the break on the x-ray, right? As humans, we want to have these like different kind of validations. Yeah. And, and I think that psychologically, the no pain, no gain thing gives us uh, like a thermometer to say, okay, I, I received something that's worth money I, and my time. And because you're walking away and you still feel it, right? Whereas if you do more like subtle approaches, then the patient's not really feeling it. And therefore, there's no validation for, at least in their body yeah. or their tissues. Yeah, I can see that. Unless they get off the table and their complaint goes away. That's yeah. true. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's always the but hope. sometimes that can just be a really good conversation totally yeah <laughs> i'm kind of like you josh i think i spend a lot of time chatting with people and helping them in a way through almost like validating and hearing them and potentially being unprofessional yeah. um because I, I i think at this point in my career it feels like that's half the treatment if not more yeah it we have to stop treating the injury and treat the person and that's it's funny because my undergrad is kind of exercise physiology but a big biomechanic component and (laughs) to watch myself like shift away from the biomechanic side of things it's just interesting it's funny how we evolve (laughs) yeah i'd agree with that It's a constant evolution. (laughs) This is fun. (laughs) Yeah, isn't it fun? Just chatting away and having a good time. (laughs) I hope my chair is not too squeaky. 
Oh, no, it'll be fine. I'll edit it out. That'll be all good. So I'm just curious, like, what is unprofessional? Because I, I want to know now if I'm unprofessional. No, but I think that that's that a, a good, good point. I think it's a really good point to say, like, where do our personal ethics meet up with, like, what our college is telling us we're supposed to do? So I want to know what you all think about this. Like, what is unprofessional? I don't... I don't know if I can say this on here. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I don't even know... If, oh, I use the term unprofessional, but it's more like more candid and just trying to build a relationship and build rapport, which actually is professional. But mm-hmm. I, I think maybe the definition of professional, when you see somebody like a physio or an osteopath, it, it's like you have this certain expectation of, I don't know, Maybe somebody who's very business oriented and like knows the body really well and is an expert and mm-hmm. okay, I don't need a lot of bedside manner as long as they get the job done. And mm-hmm. right. I don't do that. <laughs> <laughs> well, you might blend the two. Exactly. Together. Yeah. You're blending like a bedside manner with the uh, get the job done. Um, and then sometimes I've been told, like, I'm just too blunt with people. Yeah. Like, I've had other therapists tell me, like, you know, I would have never said that to them. And I was like, well, they needed to hear it. Yeah. And, and if they didn't need to hear it, someone at least needed to, needed to say yeah. it. And it's up to them what they do with it next. But to just kind of beat around the bush and, and be super soft all the time, I don't think is always the most appropriate measure either. But it's a, it's a total... Uh, balance kind of a balance and a bit of a guessing game like you know I have to kind of guess that their character or their personality is willing to understand where I'm coming from and willing to hear it yeah you're making a professional judgment based on that right yeah I don't think you're ever going to be more blunt so studying Chinese medicine I had this instructor from China And we use tongue diagnosis, right? People stick out their tongue. We look and we see all these things on the tongue. And I was in student clinic and I needed some help. So I went and asked my instructor, like, hey, could you come in and have a look at my patient's tongue? And my (laughs) patient stuck out their tongue. And she goes, P.U. Haliotosis, you have stinky breath. (laughs) (laughs) And I was like, We have to think about cultural differences, right? Because she's like, oh, that's just normal. We say these things in China, right? Yeah. Like, I'd be in class and she'd be like, hey, excuse me, I got to go have a diarrhea. And we're like, whoa. <laughs> <laughs> that's pretty blunt. Um, so I just think, like, being blunt isn't necessarily unprofessional. It could just be, you know, culturally totally. or how we're raised. Totally. Or, there's just so many factors and like bluntness. Um, and I have to actually do a better job of yeah. becoming more blunt because I do beat around the bush a lot. <laughs> and so, yeah, you just got to know your strengths. <laughs> so you're not going to tell someone if they have bad breath, oh, no. Josh? No. <laughs> I've gotten better at telling somebody well, if they have like something on their face or something, but... <laughs> <laughs> See, unfortunately in Chinese medicine, bad breath is is a big symptom of yeah. other things, right? So totally. 
medically we do have to document that sort of thing so patient when patients are like well how did you come up with that diagnosis I kind of have to be like well you know you're burping a lot you've got acid regurgitation you have a red face you're sweating lots you have bad breath (laughs) just like throw it in there (laughs) no compliment sandwich I don't know I remember I had to send you a picture of my tongue, Monica, because you're like, coming to see you. And you're like, yeah, send me a picture of your tongue so I can, you know, diagnose whatever's going on. And then I like, looked at the picture of my tongue. And I was like, what the <laughs> hell is going on with my tongue? <laughs> like, I don't think I've ever really looked at that my whole entire tongue before. But it made me really suspicious. I'm like, yeah, that doesn't look healthy. <laughs> yeah. That's funny. And if you don't think it looks healthy, then imagine what I'm going to think. Yeah, I... <laughs> I'm just kidding. No one has a perfect tongue, by the way. For all of our listeners, don't be shy to show me your tongue because I don't think I've ever seen a perfect tongue. So I've never seen a perfect body. I've never seen a perfect movement. You know, we're, we're like... so we're... Yeah. yeah, yeah. Like perfect I... is not All attainable. our textbooks are like symmetrical lines everywhere. Yeah. Oh, everything needs to be lined up perfectly. And I'm like, when and where does this ever happen? Because I can't find yeah. it. <laughs> yeah, it's good. Yeah. It's funny. Once again, like the whole pain thing, it's like people can be move perfectly, be incredibly strong, no history of injury, and then they could still get pain. <laughs> Like, yeah, yeah, there's just so much more to it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think we're going to wrap it up here because it's getting kind of late and, uh, and we're just chilling in our clinic still. Five minute interlude. Sorry. (laughs) It's all good. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, don't worry about that. That's totally fine. Yeah. Josh, that was so much that was fun. A lot of fun. Like we have to do this again. I, I would love that to. That was really cool. <laughs> I'm so glad that you joined, and uh, we really appreciate your perspectives and learning from each other. This it was really special. Well, likewise, so. thank you very much. Thank you so much. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it was very enjoyable. Thanks awesome. for the the chat. No